Thank you, Pete. The Sunday school classes are heading off. You'll see them some heading into my office. They're not going in there to rob my office. They're going in there to enjoy the um, the air conditioning, which they don't have out in the side room. So all the best, Jack. Well, I don't like to interrupt on the theme, but um, I'm going to bring, or the text, the scripture is going to bring you down to earth, down into the realities, to all the ups and downs, and sometimes the mess and the difficulties and the trials and the afflictions. That's what we're going to deal with this morning. I'm going to pray again. Father in heaven, we do give thanks that we have a future. We have a hope which is the Lord Jesus and it is true as the hymn writer has said and scripture tells us that we shall see him face to face. We look forward to that day when our bodies will be transformed. When that full redemption of our bodies will take place and we'll be made like him and we will be with him forever. But in the meantime, Father, here we are and we need your help, we need your counsel and we need your comfort. So as we look at this scripture today, this book, this text, help us to understand and help us to apply it to us and may your spirit drive it home into our hearts this morning. These things we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. So I do trust you've got your Bibles there this morning. If you'd open the scriptures to 2 Corinthians, we're going to launch into this book and uh, God willing... We'll continue on until we finish it. Of course, the Lord might come before then, and so that'll be all the better. We're going to read the first 11 verses, and then we'll discuss this section. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Asia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the Father, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Verse 5. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or, if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same suffering which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the incentives of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, He on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. You also, joining and helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf 
for the favour bestowed on us through the prayers of many. God, I know we'll add a blessing uh, to his word this morning. This morning we're going to begin a journey into a very special text of scripture and I call it special because this second letter of the Apostle Paul is not so much an in-depth look at the church at Corinth but more to do with a whole big deeper look into the heart and life of the Apostle Paul. The second letter of Paul to this Corinthian church is, is probably least known among all his letters. Probably the least read of all his letters. Probably the best, the least preached on of all his letters. And the reason for that is, hey, it's very heavy reading. And it's, many places it's difficult to understand. And, and because of those reasons and plus others, it kind of gets shelved. Well, we're the worst off for doing that, honestly. We are. We're the worst off for doing that because, as I said, this letter represents the most personal and intimate of all letters that the Apostle Paul has ever written that we have in our text of Scripture. When we looked at 1 Corinthians, which we spent about a year and a half on, what we did there is we looked at Corinth, we looked at the city, we looked at the church in that city. And what we saw was how the culture was impacting the church, sad to say, big time. Rather than the church impacting the culture. That's what we saw. And sadly, that also is reality in our day, right? We all see it too often. Where the culture is negatively impacting the church rather than the other way around. And as I've said before, and that's not my phrase, but what happens then? The sins of the culture become the sins of the church. But in 2 Corinthians, the book we're looking at this morning, or beginning to look at, the emphasis is not so much on the church, rather we look at the Apostle Paul. He is the one in the spotlight. As he lays himself open, he reveals his sacrificial personal love for the church. And he offloads his innermost feelings. He doesn't do that to earn brownie points. I believe he does this to set us an example, a model for us to follow. And so he makes this a very personal biography. But also it's a letter that is so needful for us today so that we can follow And just looking at this book, although we call it the Second Corinthians, I hope you realise that it perhaps should be called Fourth Corinthians. Because it is the last of four letters that Paul wrote to this church. Two of these letters have not been preserved for us in the canon of Scripture. They've been lost, as we call them. And for whatever reason, they were never intended or need to be in the canon of Scripture. But they were written. And so that is why we only have the first and second Corinthians. But the first and the second don't necessarily follow on in chronological order. And so with that, I would just like to briefly review for you some of the historical background here regarding the chronology of first and second Corinthians so that you've got it in your mind, I've got it in my mind, and so we can sort of go together with Paul on this. 
You see, Paul began the church at Corinth somewhere around 52 or 53 AD. And he stayed there for about a year and a half. And then after his period of a year and a half there, he then went across into Asia Minor at a place called Ephesus, which is we now call modern Turkey. And while there, well, after he had gone over to Ephesus, it wasn't too long after, but he heard some disturbing news where things had turned sour in the church of Corinth. He had heard of division, he had heard of abuse of spiritual gift, he had heard of sexual deviancy of all kinds that shouldn't be named amongst Christians, and it really upset him. So from Ephesus, what he did is he wrote to them a confronting letter, referred to, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to 9, to address these serious spiritual and moral problems. Now that letter is lost to us. It's not part of the canon of Scripture. We might like to call that the first letter. It is referred to. So in response to this confronting and instructive letter, the Corinthians wrote back to the Apostle Paul asking him many questions. And this is referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 1. And in reply to that letter, Paul wrote what we now call as 1 Corinthians. He couldn't leave. He would have loved to have left Ephesus and gone, but he couldn't leave because the ministry was calling and he needed to be in Ephesus. He couldn't leave, so he wrote to them. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8 and 9. He needed to be in Ephesus. But in this... 1 Corinthians, as we know it, he tried to answer their questions. And if you'll remember, I even often refer to, here's another question, here's another question, here's another question, all the way first, that the Corinthians had asked Paul, and so he addresses them. And he instructs and he corrects them on many of these moral and spiritual matters. Now evidently, that letter that he wrote, 1 Corinthians, as we have in a text, hit some deaf, proud ears. For it did not accomplish that all Paul wanted and intended. And so the Corinthian believers, many of them, spat the dummy, as it were. This bad response, and on top of that, false teachers had come amongst them playing havoc. And Paul gets to hear about this, and he gets real nervous back in Ephesus. And as a result of this, we learn from 2 Corinthians 2.1 that Paul makes a quick trip back to Corinth to say what he needed to say as an apostle of God. Now how long we, this quick trip took, we do not know. But Paul calls it a painful visit. He went with a severe word of rebuke. But again, it did not go down well. There were heaps of negative reaction from the church at Corinth. So when he returned to Ephesus, He sent another brief letter, known as the severe letter. Okay, this is number three of the letters that he wrote. But also number three letter hasn't been preserved for us either. But he sent this letter back in the hands of Titus to see if Titus could help them. And that's referred to, this severe letter, in 2 Corinthians 7, 5 to 16. And so he sends it back. And Paul, like any of us, you know, you send it back and here he's in Ephesus and he waits for feedback 
I wonder how it's going down. I wonder how, I wonder if this is just going to be more fat that hits the fan back there or what. And so his, his kind of curiosity gets the better of him and he cannot wait any longer and he can't wait for Titus to come back and give him a report. So he heads off himself and he gets to Troas right there on the coast before he sails over to Macedonia and there he, and there he meets Titus. He makes his way over to Macedonia, what we call modern Greece. And there they meet up, 2 Corinthians 7, 7. And Titus had great news. Great news. Titus was able to report that most of the Corinthians had repented of their sinfulness and reaffirmed their loyalty to, to the Apostle. And this brought great joy and relief to the Apostle Paul, as you can imagine. And it was from this Macedonian region, that's north of Corinth, somewhere there, that Paul writes what we now know as 2 Corinthians, although this is his fourth letter in the lineup. So he writes this letter, but being the wise apostle, and he was superly encouraged and joyful over the spiritual turnaround, but he is wise enough to know that there still will be some collateral damage from all the stuff that had been happening in the last couple of years. He knows that some there will still question his credentials as an apostle of Jesus Christ and he knows that some will be, will be weakened by the invasion of false prophets spreading their heresy and so he knew that some would need strengthening in the faith and so 2 Corinthians is penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that's where we come to today. A brief summary And as we think about this, I've titled this message Comfort in Times of Affliction, verses 1 to 11. (coughs) So that's where we come to. So Apostle Paul pens this. And uh, and what I want to do before I launch into the text, I I, I want to now bridge this historical gap. You know, it's happened a long time ago, right? And here we are today in 2015. And, And so we need to bridge this historical gap between Paul and ourselves here this morning And so just for starters, just to get your uh, thinking caps uh, motivated, I I would like to try and put your feet in the Apostle Paul's shoes. Right at the outset, thinking of this letter that he's writing. I want you to test yourself with a question about your attitude, your fellowship with believers who may have hurt you, grieved you, slandered you and behaved towards you in a demeaning manner. How would you respond to them? Big question, right? Can I suggest, at the best, we would probably ignore them and tell them to get on their bikes and carry on their devious ways. I don't want nothing to do with you anymore. Well, we need to take heed here, folks, because the Apostles' letter gives us great insight as to what it means to regard one another as more important than yourselves and not merely to look on your own interests but also the interests of others, which the Apostle Paul spoke to the Philippians. Because that's what the Apostle does. The Apostle sets us an example in writing this letter in that he, he continues to pursue difficult people when most would give up. Now, first heading on our line is Paul's introductory greeting. For those who are visitors here today, we preach expository or we are trying to, and we like to sort of preach the text and 
allow the text to be the topic, if you want to put it. And so this is what we continue to do. This is a very familiar greeting there by the Apostle Paul. But it does need to be noted that these are not mere words that are a mass matter of, of, of customary letter writing. You know, like, dear John, how are you getting on? You know, that sort of thing. Uh, it wasn't uh, words said with lightness. In this greeting, the original audience would have picked this up and would have understood that Paul was stating his credentials and as, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is important here because clarity that, it's clarity that confirms his teaching and words to believers came from. It would, it would make that very clear that they came from the Lord's apostles. You know, his, his authority doesn't come from the church or from a seminary or from some guru that Paul might have or could, possibly, could have been following, which he wasn't. It wasn't anything like that, but his authority and credentials were from the Lord himself. And this is a very strong point that Paul makes here especially to those who then and still today question the Apostles' authority. You know, there's, even, there's volumes of books being written out there questioning Paul's right and his authority to say this and that and hundreds of other things. And so, but Paul makes it clear here. He simply means that he's the Lord's messenger, that's what an Apostle is, he's the Lord's messenger who is sent to carry out the Lord's mission. And that's what he's doing. So what he had learned and taught came from Jesus Christ himself. And that came through direct revelation, it came through visions, it came through dreams, personally given to him, which is by the way referred to in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 1. So when we read Paul's letters we're reading what Jesus Christ said to him. Okay? We're talking about going to heaven. And uh, wow, you know, all sorts of things we might say to him. I think it would be a whole lot better probably to think of a whole lot more of what he's already said to us now and take heed to it. And so this is what Paul says. He's an apostle. And so when Paul speaks here in these letters, it's Christ himself speaking. Um, and so really, when you think about that authority, we don't want to mess with that, right? We don't want to mess with that. Another thing there, we see that this letter was not exclusively for this Corinthian church that had all the problems. We see there all the saints who are throughout Achaia, that's the whole region of Macedonia. The whole region is probably stopping short of Philippi, but all that there, there are many churches there. It's ancient Greece as we know it today. Therefore there were many churches that this letter was intended to be read and, 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 and taught to, and I believe that we can rightly be included in that this morning. But as in all of Paul's letters, he offers them grace and peace. Well-known words of scripture. But they're important words. Again, not just a customary greeting. Grace is a word that collates all that God is ready to do for us and to give to us. That's what it means. All of God's provisions come to us by his grace. Therefore, anything that God gives you, folks, anything that God gives you, whether it's love and joy, peace, forgiveness, help, wisdom, it's a part of God's grace gift, I call it. Okay, It's a part of his grace gift. Therefore, we live in his grace. We live by his grace. We hear by his grace. We have clothes on the back by our grace. We have a roof over our heads by his grace. We live 
in His grace. And so as we think about that, the result of living in that understanding of living in His grace is that we'll be at peace. That's why grace and peace go together. The heart that is resting on the gifts of God's grace is a heart that is calm, producing a tranquil spirit. I get upset sometimes. My wife, she's like a second conscience to me and reminds me when I get upset and anxious, over-anxious. And I have to pull myself up. It's simply because I'm not resting in the grace of God. Once I pull back and understand who God is and, and, and God is sovereign and got everything in control, I go, right, that's it. And all the <coughs> tranquility, peace reigns. Charles Hodge, the great theologian, once said, Grace is favour, peace its fruit. How true that is. Now that is the way a Christian should live. That is the way that we should live. We have to live by God's grace and it will, if we do, produce peace. Don't you want that? The whole teaching, as a matter of fact, of the New Testament zeroes in on this. Forget about heaven for the moment, right? Okay? We're back on earth now. We're in the here and now. Okay? And we've got to battle our way through it. It's a warfare. We're told about that. There's going to be struggles. There's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be all sorts of stuff happening. We need to know how to handle it. And that's, the whole testament zeroes in on this. You see, it's not just about doctrine. It's not just about how to get to heaven, the scriptures. It's teaching us on how to handle and cope with the pressures and the problems of life and to be at peace, shalom, at the same time. Therefore, the constant supply of God's grace is to bring peace to our troubled hearts. We are to live at peace. How? By resting in God's grace. Maybe it would be a good question to ask at this point. So why do I, or why do Christians, need to suffer turmoil and affliction at all? Why is that? Well, in this next section, I believe Paul gives us, he dives straight into this important subject, and he gives us four reasons, I've got jotted down here, as to why Christians suffer and experience problems. So why do Christians suffer? We have this in verses 3 to 7. And before we look at the first reason, the careful reader will note that the words, just like grace and peace always go together, the words affliction and comfort go together. Affliction and comfort, affliction and comfort, all the way through. They go together. They stand out repeatedly in this section and always side by side. You see, affliction is what we today would call pressure or stress. You don't know about that, do you? Of course you do. Everyone knows about pressure and stress to some degree or other. It is what many may experience as a result of workplace demands. I don't know the numbers in here experience that. Or, or what, maybe when the finances get super low and we don't know where the money's coming in to pay for the next lot of rates or the next lot of electricity bills, that's stress. Or, or, or when maybe family issues get really super difficult. 
You see, whatever gets you wound up inside, whatever will not leave you, maybe causing you sleepless nights, it's foreboding, folks, it really is, you know about this, and can lead to serious anxiety and depression and even threatening your health and well-being. That's what it does, it can. This is affliction, as this word describes here. This is affliction. This is stress, this is pressure. And we all live in it, none of us are exempt. Paul experienced it as well, by the way, you know that? Probably in a far greater way than anyone in this room will ever experience it. But he also experienced something else. Listen to this. As the two words go together, yes, he knew affliction, but he also knew the comfort of God. Don't we want that? The comfort of God? And this comfort here is, it, we may, just, you know, in our English language, it sort of lacks a bit of depth in many ways. It's not just putting an arm around someone's shoulder or having a friendly chit chat or, or, or whatever. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's a whole lot more than that. Paul does not mean that here. What this word comfort means is basically to strengthen. What Paul experienced was the, the strengthening of God to give him a peaceful, restful spirit to meet the pressures and stresses of the day that he lived in. That's what it was. And that's how we are to live, folks. That's how we are to live. How good would that be? Strengthen in the, in the Greek, by the way, comes from the root word paraclete. And you've probably all heard the word paraclete. It's often a word that's referred to as the Holy Spirit. He's the one who comes alongside. In other words, he is the strengthener. The Holy Spirit is often referred to in our English Bibles as the comforter. Well, here's the word, paraclete. Comfort. This is God's provision for affliction, suffering, stress or pressure. But let me ask you, why is it that so many Christians are weighed down by stress and pressures of life and yet never, and all this, never, or they, they fail to avail themselves of God's provision of comfort, strength in those times? Why is that? Why is that? See, folks, this is not just for spiritual issues or problems. These words here are, are, are kind of any kind of problem we may have. Anything that we may, that causes stress to us. God's comfort, God's strengthening is available to who, for whatever puts you under stress. And he's promised to be this to us. After all, the Lord is our friend, right? We know that, we read that. He's our friend. He loves it all times. Proverbs 17 verse 17 tells that. We believe it. There's one who sticks closer than a brother, Proverbs 18, 24. Ah, we love those verses. And his promise to never leave us or forsake us, Hebrews 13, verse 5. We say those very quickly and can wrote them off by heart. But do we really take them to our hearts and live them out? That's the question. So what is the response that we often have? And sad to say, oh, I even often have. Too often towards stress and affliction. Can I suggest, and I only suggest here, can I suggest, this is what we do, we hate affliction and stress and pressure and the pain that it brings so much that we will do anything and even pray to the Lord to rid us of it. It's holding me back, Lord. 
It's causing me too much emotional pain. It's causing me too much even physical pain. I want it to be rid of, Lord. Take it away from me. You see, in our lack of understanding of all this, of the two words going together, affliction and comfort, that's quite often what we want and what we all even pray. Folks, that is not Christianity in action. It's not Christianity in action. Listen to the Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what Paul is doing here, he praises God for the circumstances of his life, even though there are heaps of affliction and pressure in his life. That's what he does. He calls God the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He sees God's hand as having sent the pressures that he receives in life, he received, and therefore, he does not, except for there is an occasion that we may uh, call the question in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he had uh, whatever was bothering him, he prayed three times, and the Lord says, No, no, you're not, I'm not going to rid that view. My, my grace is sufficient. But he does not pray to have afflictions removed to merely be comfortable and so to escape the emotional or the physical pain and hurt they bring. He doesn't pray that. He doesn't do that. Because what the Apostle Paul does, he sees them as opportunities to experience the comfort of God. You got that? That's what he does. That is the first reason why Christians go through suffering. Even if the afflictions that we have are painful, this is the way that we can discover God's comfort in any kind of stress or pressure that we might face. After all, how on earth are we ever going to find the comfort of God or experience the comfort of God if we're not under any pressure or stress? It takes, folks, affliction to discover what God can do and God will keep on sending affliction until you look to Him and find His strength in times of need. That's what He will do. I really love how Apostle Paul cements this in place over in verse 5. And he says this, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. In other words, heaps of stress, but equally heaps of strengthening. That is how the Christian should live and experience life, folks. Should. But there's another tremendous truth here that Paul is saying. Because God was constantly strengthening and protecting Paul, Paul had this, had this understanding that because of that, nothing could touch him. He was indestructible. Won't you like to live like that? Indestructible until the time when God and his sovereign plan called him home. He understood that. Nothing could touch me. The Lord is in control. Yes, he may have me killed, whatever, but he's in control and he only does what's right. He only does what's perfect and just. Now, living like that's got to remove a whole lot of stress, right? So Paul did what he did. You know, he was at the bottom end of riots in every town he went. He was shipwrecked and he was beaten. He was... He was slandered, he was pulled from pillar to post, as as many of us have been studying in the book of Acts. He knew that the Lord had a plan, he didn't know all the details. Finally he knew that he was heading to Rome, and so he stuck true to the word. You know what? This is God's promise to us all. 
He will faithfully sustain and strengthen us as long as we are obedient to his will until his appointed time when he calls us home. Now what can be better than that? What can be better than that? So why worry? Why stress? This adds a whole lot of argument and weight to Paul's um, command in the Philippians chapter chapter 4 verse 6. And you'll know this was where it says, be anxious for nothing. And in the Greek, that's in the imperative. And so what that means, this is a command. It's not an optional extra to Christianity. It says, be anxious for nothing. And it goes on to tell us that by everything, make your prayers and requests be made down to God. And so this adds a whole lot of weight to that. So the first reason for affliction is that so we can experience the strength of God. The second reason for suffering is found in verse 4 where it says, so that we will be able to comfort for those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. As you get older, this hits home more clearly, I believe. Have you ever considered your responsibility as being a steward of the strengthening and comforting received during tough times? I wonder if you ever considered that. You see, folks, this is where we all get lopsided as Christians. We get all individualistic. And, um, and, and or we may excuse and say, oh, well, I'm too shy, I'm, I'm, I'm not a person to sort of open, be open and, and share what my troubles and et cetera, et cetera. And so we tend to think too privately on these matters. And I ask the question, why is that? You see here, God's comfort is given not only to strengthen us, but so that we might pass it on. You see that? Paul saw himself, what does he see himself? He saw himself like a channel. A channel that had been of God's comfort, that carried God's comfort. And that channel had been dug deep and wide with all the afflictions that he suffered in life, but it was carrying the comfort and strength of God ready to pour out great doses of comfort that he had received to others. In other words, those who experience the most suffering will receive the most comfort and those who receive the most comfort are best equipped to comfort others. I know some of you here have been through extremely difficult times in your lives. And God has sustained you, has comforted you, has strengthened you. What are you doing about that? You're being individualistic and just keeping it to yourself? Oh God, look how you comforted me. Thank you, Lord. No, no, no. Any opportunity that comes, you are to pass that on and strengthen and help others. That's what it's for. Remember Malcolm and Lorraine Sabine? They were members of this church some years ago and within two and a half, I think it was two and a half months, both of them had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. They loved the Lord. He was an elder here. I cried with those guys. My heart, I I just could not believe it. One, yes, but two? And within the next year and a half, both were dead and gone to be with the Lord. Do you know what? The Lord strengthened those couple. And as I visited them, and many of you visited them here over and over and over again in their last dying days, they passed on great amounts of comfort to me anyway. They weren't bitter. They saw it as a trial and a test and knew the Lord was in control, they were going to die and so they passed on the comfort. That's what we're to be. 
You see, when we give away to complaining and murmuring about our circumstances, or, or we value the comfort that God gives purely as an end to itself, we are nothing but block channels. Block channels. And that is why Paul says to the church here, when I suffer it is for your comfort, so, it's so that you might see how God can strengthen me to handle whatever afflictions are sent my way. That's the lesson we're called to learn in verse 6 of this text. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings in which we also suffer. That's what he's telling us there. In other words, patiently enduring and trusting in God's sovereign care to take you through the difficult times. So what do you do? You patiently wait. Why? He can do, but he most often does not take the suffering away. You've ever experienced knowing that? He doesn't take it away. But he will take you through it. He will take you through it. And what better strengthener would you want than the Lord in difficult times such as that, right? That's the kind of approach that produces endurance and and kind of brings light at the end of your tunnel. Because it will come to pass. One way or another, right? It will come to pass. Jordan reminded me last week during homework, you know, Jeff, that's one of your favourite little sayings, and it came to pass. Yeah, yeah, I said, it is. Folks, as we, place, as we face pressure and stressful times, we need to understand that it's not here to stay, right? It's not here to stay. It will come to pass. Yes, it may be for Malcolm and Lorraine, they went into the grave, but they are absent for the body and present for the Lord. It came to pass for them. Like John was saying, well, no more pain. You know, that, that's, what, that's where they, it came to pass for them. But oftentimes, stress and pressure, the Lord, through circumstances and through patient enduring, will give us the strength to bear it and it will come to pass. Paul then goes on to say this in an encouragement, as an encouragement term in verse 7. He says, And our hope for you is firmly grounded, uh, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. You know, over the years, my heart has ached time and time again with people who have suffered and gone through trials and afflictions of various kinds. And often I have wished... What can I do to take it from them? To take away the hurt, to take away the anguish of the heart as if I could do anything. And this is especially true of famine. But you see, folks, I dare not go down that trail. I dare not go down that trail. Even if I could, because they need to experience the suffering so that they can experience the comfort. And Paul's own encouragement here should instruct us as well. Our hope, he said, for you is unshaken. What he's saying here is that as you have known the strengthening comfort of God in times of affliction, we know that you will experience this too. You are brothers and sisters in the Lord. Yes, you're going to get tough times, but you patiently endure and you look to the Lord and you will experience, just like we have had, the comfort and strengthening of God. So that is why God sends us difficulties at times. Not always for our sake, but for someone else's sake. You know, when we have matured in the faith through affliction and comfort, what a powerful witness and testimony it is for those younger who are following on and watching us, right? How we handle it and how we face it. A third reason for Christian suffering is given in verses 8 to 10. 
is to learn to trust in God and not in ourselves. This is what those verses say. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of, our, of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. Now we're not too sure of what specific affliction Paul was making reference to here uh, because he had so many as we read on the book of Acts but mostly here it's likely to do with the treatment that he received in Ephesus. Okay, He spent a lot of time in Ephesus, up to two years or probably a bit more in Ephesus. And, um, and, but Paul's point is here is to highlight the severity of his affliction. He's not do, doing a bleeding heart act here. He's just bearing his own soul and, the, and about what this was. You see, this was a time when it appeared to Paul and his team that... that, that the whole Christian cause had collapsed. With Corinth going the way it was, with Ephesus going the way it was, everything came down like a ton of bricks. And Paul had laboured for years and years and he could see it was all falling apart. And this even spoke about the stress that he received. He says, concerning the churches, his heart was heavy within him, causing unusual emotional distress and and even physical threat during this time. And what does he say? He tells us that he was unbearably crushed, or some of your translations well, was burdened excessively. In other words, what this means is he was at the lowest ebb the human spirit can come to. He was an utter sense of despair. He was at the point of collapse and depression. That's what this word means. That's what it carries. That's what it connotes. His state was such... He says that we despaired of life and felt that we had received the sentence of death. And despair, that word despair means no exit, no way out. So to Paul, everything was hopeless. He had given up. There was no way out. But then he adds, but then he adds, praise the Lord, so that we would not trust in ourselves. You see that? Paul's sufferings were to teach him not to trust in himself. This is one of the major reasons why God sends us suffering posts of whatever degree it may be. Maybe it's big, maybe it's small. You see, when, when the fat hits the fan of life, it's God's signal for us to look to him. It is God's messenger, can we say, that should drive us from our stubborn, self-determined ways to depend upon the Lord to be the only way through whatever affliction we are in. And that's got to be good, right? That's got to be good. That is the major reason, I think, for suffering. But is this the way we handle those difficult times? Paul sets the benchmark here, folks. He does. He sets the benchmark. He lives this way because his whole worldview on affliction was founded, get this, was founded on his understanding of who God is and his almighty power because he speaks here. Wow, God raises the dead. Now, nothing can beat that. So his whole worldview is based on who God is. His God had proved all-powerful in delivering him in the past. 
You can think of those occasions and the shipwrecks and the stones. He was even left dead. You know, took him out, stoned him, and they left him out for dead. And he, he raised up again and went back and so forth. And so God had, had delivered him in the past. And so Paul's hope and trust, his hope and trust in God had been nurtured through affliction. In other words, the more believers suffer and experience God's comfort, the more their hope in him grows. That's how we need to live, right? That's the Christian lifestyle. That's how a Christian worldview should be toward difficulties and despairs and disasters and horrible things that happen to us and to other believers. Brings us to our fourth and final one that provides opportunity for us to pray and give thanks to God. You see this in verse 11. You also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on the behalf of for the favour bestowed on us through the prayers of many. I remember the time when my wife and I experienced affliction. It was such that it left us absolutely gutted, can I say, and emotionally wrecked. We were at an absolute loss as to how we should go about dealing and getting our hearts and minds around this specific period in time in our lives. It was deep affliction. The first thing it did, it drove us to our knees, I can well remember. And that was good. But folks, but folks, listen. It was not, I'll remember the day clearly, it was not until my father and my mother and my brother and other family members gathered around us and prayed that we felt relief in the burden lifted. They prayed that we might be given God's strength to live through this time of turmoil and that we might trust the Lord more and more than ever before. And I think it's a result of that 20 years ago. But I'm here today. You see, where there was hopelessness, there came strength and hope and thanksgiving. That's what the prayers of many bring. That's why sharing our burdens to others for, for prayer is so, such a vitally important ministry among us. And we're a family here, right? That is why it's, it's a church family's responsibility to pray for one another and to be strengthened in times of affliction. This is a vital ministry among us. That's why I love home groups. Times of sharing. What's happening in your life? Don't be individualistic or private that you don't share. It's not to be a gossip session either, or a reason for a gossip session, but a time where we can share our burdens, our difficulties, whatever they might be, so that prayers of many can be effective before the Lord's throne of grace, and we might be given the strength to comfort it, walk through there. Suffering provides opportunity to pray, and it will awaken thanksgiving in many, many hearts. Now that is the way believers ought to respond to stress and pressure, to difficult times of trials and disasters. And may we learn that sufferings for the believer can be abundantly over-counteracted with the comfort that the God of comfort gives to all those who trust Him. Shall we pray?
Our Father in heaven, we bow before you with humble hearts this morning and we confess, Lord, that we have so much to learn. And it is true that the circumstances of life and even culture to some extent impact us far too much and guide our worldview where it should be guided by your word. And even in regards to the specific area of our lives where stress and problems come in, Lord, we thank you for teaching us how we should live and how we should handle them. So, Father, as you go from this place, whatever we're going through, help us to share our burdens with one another so that we can pray for one another. Help us to be more open so that we can pour out our comfort that you have given us to others. And so, Father, we give thanks. Take us to our homes and safety. Watch over us during this week, we pray. And may it be a week where we are uplifted by the Word of God and have our hearts worshipping and thanking and praising you. We give thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus.